Before we get started, why don't we have a word of prayer? We'll start off with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and use 1 John 1 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to remember all that you have done for us, to focus on your word, to reflect upon the magnificent plan that you have designed for our lives, for church-age believers, and to come to a greater understanding and appreciation of all that you are doing in and through us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a substitute for us, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that by Simply believing in Him, we can have eternal life. We thank You for His present ministry as our High Priest and His current work at, at the right hand of Your throne. Now, Father, as we study these things this week and in the coming weeks, we pray that You'd help us to put these uh, ideas together, come to understand them better, that they may impact our, our understanding of our own unique spiritual life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Mike said, this morning we're going to start a series. And so this morning is focused more on the subject of introduction. We're going to talk about the ascension and the current session of Christ over the next four Sundays. The ascension and session of Christ. And this is really important because these doctrines aren't taught very much today. In fact, in his systematic theology... Uh, Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, noted the fact that little had been really written or developed on the significance of the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he noted a theological reason for it. And the theological reason, as we'll see in a little bit, has to do with your overall perspective of understanding the Bible, how you interpret the Bible. And as most of you know, there are basically two ways in which people approach the Bible and in interpreting it, uh, at least in terms of any, any outside of liberal theology, let's say. And on the one hand, you have what is known as replacement theology. And these are some terms we'll talk about and become familiar with if you're not already. Replacement theology is the idea that in God's plan and purposes, Israel failed completely when they rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah, and because of their failure, God rejected them completely, totally, and finally, and replaced them with the church, so that the church is the heir of all of the promises and covenants that were originally promised to Israel, and those covenants and promises are spiritualized so that the kingdom is now a heavenly kingdom, the land is now heaven, and things of that nature. And you have different branches of replacement theology, whether it's Lutheran theology or Presbyterian covenant theology, or whether it's uh, uh, Wesleyan theology or Roman Catholic theology. All these different systems all buy into some form of replacement theology or another. On the other hand, there's dispensationalism, and we are dispensationalists. We believe that there's a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, and God did not finally and totally reject Israel 
When they rejected Christ, he set them aside temporarily and called out a new people, the church age that is neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in the body of Christ. And that was a plan that was not prophesied or foreseen in the in the Old Testament. Now, if you're just approaching Scripture from a replacement theology grid, if that's your framework, then you're never going to really come to understand the doctrine of the current session of Christ. Because to understand it, you have to plug it into what comes next and its preparation for the millennial kingdom and, and how the current church age fits into that. And so if you're not starting from the right framework... You're just not going to consider it very much at all. That's why another reason why amillennialists don't ever talk about the rapture. I mean, if you don't have a framework for a tribulation or future kingdom, the rapture's not even going to enter into your frame of thinking. That's why for uh, over a thousand years, from roughly 300, from roughly AD 300 to 1600, during the, that period of the church, dominated by the amillennial allegorical uh, spiritualizing interpretive method of origin uh, which was all amillennial you don't have anybody talking about dispensationalism or rapture or anything like that because it just doesn't fit that grid so Chafer pointed out that since amillennial postmillennialists don't ever don't have a framework wherein they would talk about the the present session of Christ it doesn't really uh, it's never really been developed and I think there's another reason a couple other reasons today why it's, it's not talked about very much. One is because we live in an era today when people just want to come to church and find out something that they can take home and apply this afternoon. It's just another manifestation of the, the narcissistic me generation of the late 20th century. We want shallow, superficial teaching that really just impacts me so that I can go home this afternoon and apply something. So that reduces... Scripture to little to to the other problem, which is sound bites, and we live in a sound bite era today, where we want to be able to encapsulate everything in one quick little sentence. Just make it a one little quick talking point, and I'll take that home. Don't give me any background. Don't help me think. Just give me little one shot saying so that I can reduce everything to simple one minute sound bites. Problem with that is you can't think that way. You can't learn to think that way. You can't gain appreciation for what God is doing. And the scripture is more significant and more deep than that. The scripture has is designed to teach us how to think, not only about our own Christian life, not only in terms of how we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in terms of salvation, but also in terms of what God is doing in the whole overall picture of history and reality. And we plug into that. So history may operate at a a macro level, but it also operates in terms of a micro level in terms of our individual lives. So what the Bible presents is a lot of information sometimes that you just can't cover in 15, 20, 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And so hence... We have four hours to cover the Ascension and Session of Christ, which barely scratches the surface, but at least it'll get things started. I remember years ago the stories told that, that at chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, J. Vernon McGee is a well-known Bible teacher. You may have heard him on the radio. He originally hailed from Waxahachie, Texas, 
and uh, he was asked uh, to come and speak in chapel. This was in the early 70s. And so he was going to come and speak in chapel at Dallas Seminary. Just before chapel began, he was told that he only had 20 minutes. So he didn't have time to react or respond, so he went in and he's in chapel. And chapel usually only lasted 30 minutes. We sang a hymn, heard announcements, and the speaker spoke for about 20 minutes and then we closed in prayer. And uh, so it came time to introduce the speaker. He was introduced. Dr. McGee got up and he said, Men, back in those days, Dallas was still orthodox and realized, you, you know, you didn't have women in seminary. And he said, Men, I've just been told I only have 20 minutes. You can't say anything significant about the Bible in only 20 minutes. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. <laughs> so we're going to start a, a study that's going to maybe challenge a few people in the course of this. What I find fascinating is how this whole subject weaves together certain Old Testament promises and passages, various psalms. You have to interact with the Davidic covenant. You have to interact with a lot of different themes. The New Testament was written on the, on the top of the Old Testament, so many times you can't understand what's going on in the New Testament unless you have a pretty solid understanding of what happened in the Old Testament. So we're going to begin our study just by looking at the incident itself of the ascension of Jesus Christ. So our topic over the next four weeks is the ascension, the church age, and your spiritual life. Because the ascension really sets up some unique factors for this church age that impact our individual spiritual life. Well, here's a picture of the Mount of Olives. And it was from the Mount of Olives south of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley from the temple that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. In Acts 1, 7 through 9, we find the central passage describing the ascension, although it's also referred to in Mark and in Luke. Luke writes in Acts 1-7, He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I want you to note there that His last statement before He departs has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit. There is an integral connection between Jesus' ascension before the Holy Spirit can come. He said, but you shall, future tense, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now this is the historical account of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Well, what did I do there? Anybody who thinks deeply or significantly about the ascension should come up with several questions. First of all, why did Christ have to ascend 
at all. Why was the ascension necessary? Why not just begin the kingdom? That's, after all, that's what the disciples expected, and that's revealed by their question. Lord, is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? Why couldn't the Messiah of Israel, who has now been crucified and accomplished salvation, why couldn't he just go right ahead and just militarily defeat the Romans, politically establish the kingdom, and go right into the millennial age? Why did he have to ascend? What's going on here? Second question. Why did Jesus have to ascend before sending the Holy Spirit? This is John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, I must go to the Father before the Holy Spirit can come to you. This again shows that there is an integral connection between the ascent of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father and the descent of the Holy Spirit. So there's something going on here that is significant, that helps us understand why, that, that something new is about to happen in the church age, and that there is this connection between Jesus at the right hand of the Father and the sending of the Holy Spirit. third thing that we learn from passages dealing with the ascension is that Jesus Christ ascended and then he gave gifts to men. This is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Specifically, the gifts that are given there are the leadership gifts for the church age, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. But the passage says Jesus ascended and he gave or distributed gifts to men. So there is a connection not only to the sending of the Holy Spirit but also to the distribution of spiritual gifts to the church. What's going on there? Fourth question to address. What's the connection between the ascension of Christ and the giving of gifts? What's this connection? Is it uh, what's going on there? Because that has an Old Testament background as well. See, all of this has something to do with different things that happen in the Old Testament that foreshadow but also explain it in terms of Jesus Christ's uh, role as the Messiah of the Old Testament. So what we're going to do is look at this thing like a puzzle and put together the pieces of the ascension. And that's the, the see if any of you'd like to do jigsaw puzzles, you know that you can pick up some of these puzzles and they have as many as 5,000 pieces or maybe more and they can just really warp your mind. And just imagine if you went to some garage sale somewhere and uh, see, I didn't use that term. People understand it down here up, up north. They had tag sales. I was wondering why they wanted to sell a tag, but <laughs> they probably come down here and wonder why you wanted to sell a garage. <laughs> In fact, somebody told me not long ago they saw a sign that said garage sale, and they drove and they drove and they drove down all these windy roads out in the country and they got some place, and that's what it was. They were selling their garage. <laughs> Just imagine going to some garage sale and you find a, an old jigsaw puzzle and there's no box top. All you have is a Ziploc bag with 5,000 pieces in it. And you've got to put that together without any reference to what it's going to look like as an end result. How would you do that? How easy would that be? Well, people who are good at it know that you find all your straight line pieces and your corners and start laying it out. But in order for those individual pieces to have meaning and significance, you have to understand the whole. You have to have that whole picture because the parts, the details, acquire their meaning in their relationship to the whole thing. 
And that's true about Bible study, and that's one reason I say so often that we get so caught up at different levels of Bible study. We look at all the details of a verse, and we look at every verb and every noun and every article and relative pronoun, and, and we get so caught up in the details that we forget the big picture. And the same thing's true on a doctrine like the ascension of Christ. It's an important doctrine, but it gives us a whole framework so we can look at at what's going on in the, in the Christian life. So we're going to put together the pieces of the ascension so that we can have a greater understanding of what it's all about. Now, the first piece we're going to look at answers the question, why? Why did Jesus Christ have to ascend? What is its purpose? Why did Jesus Christ have to go to the right hand of God the Father, and why is he now currently seated? What's going on here? Now, there, we won't completely answer that this morning, but we'll make a good start. First thing we have to recognize, and I'm going to give about six basic points here that give you the structure of what we're doing this morning. First of all, we have to recognize that when Jesus came at the first advent, the Jews expected a one coming Messiah. They expected a one coming Messiah. Now, here's a picture a chart that I took out of the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible that pictures something that, that's a very old, old concept, and that is a recognition that, uh, that the prophets saw certain key events, and they're pictured as the mountaintops of prophecy. And if you've ever driven from here up to Colorado, and as you approach the uh, eastern range there and the front range in Colorado, and you can begin to see the mountains, you, you, you see one mountain peak and then another mountain peak behind it and another behind it. But because you're so far away, it looks like they're all part of the same mountain. They're all part of the same structure. But as you get closer, you begin to realize that there may be valleys in between those mountains that are many, many miles apart. They may be 50, 60 miles apart. And from, your, from the distance... It doesn't look that way. It looks like they're just two peaks on the same mountain. And that same thing would be true in the Old Testament. Over here you have your prophet, and he's looking down the corridors of time. That's what's happening as you move from right to left on the diagram. And he just sees certain key events. He sees the crucifixion, and then the coming of the Antichrist, and then the Son of Righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, and the coming of the Second Advent and the establishment of the kingdom. But he doesn't see the valleys in between and the time gap between the first advent and the second advent. So in terms of the prophetic perspective, these are telescoped into one event. And this is why when Jesus in Luke 4 stands up in the synagogue to teach, he quotes from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he stops halfway through verse 2 because the first part down through 2a deals with the first advent. But the second half of the second verse dealt with the second advent. But in, the, in, in Isaiah, they were all viewed as one event. And so the, the prophets didn't distinguish between these time gaps. So when Jesus came, people were expecting a one coming Messiah, that he would come and he would accomplish redemption and establish the kingdom all at one time. But that didn't happen. Why what happened? Well, they were confused about something. They expected the crown, the glorious reign of the Messiah, to come before the suffering Messiah, the crown before the cross. 
The crown references Jesus' rule and reign as the uh, promised king in the Old Testament, that the Jews were promised a king who was the descendant of David and that he would rule and reign on the throne of David over a tremendous kingdom when, when Israel was elevated above all the nations. And that although they understood that there were certain prophecies that dealt with his suffering, they tended to emphasize the crown. They didn't recognize that the cross had to come before the crown, and so they reversed it, thinking the crown would come before the cross. So when Jesus came as a rather nondescript teacher from Galilee, they rejected him because he didn't fit their preconceived notions of a glorious king. They didn't understand what Peter refers to in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted, one, the sufferings of Christ, Isaiah 51, for example, and two, the glories to follow that the Messiah would come and first suffer, and second, then the glories would follow. But the rabbis confused this. They had it backwards. And so they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. So the first thing we recognize is they thought there would be a one-coming Messiah. Second, they didn't understand that the cross should come before the crown, so the crown was going to come first. And they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. Now, something happens during the reign of Christ. I mean, during his incarnation, not his reign, but during the incarnation. And this is true in all the Gospels. However you look at the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're going to run into the same problem. And what you're going to see is a presentation of the kingdom at the beginning of the Gospel. Jesus is presented as the Messiah to the nation. And it is the offer of the kingdom. And then, as time goes by, there is a break. There is an increasing hostility toward Jesus from the religious leaders, from the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those who made up the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling, the authoritative ruling body over the Jews. And so, about two-thirds of the way through his ministry... There is a, an official rejection of the king. This comes, for example, in Matthew chapter 12 when they began to accuse him of performing his miracles in the power of Satan. And from that point on, there is a deterioration in his relationship with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin leading to his crucifixion. Now, this is pretty important to understand because the message that Jesus is presenting is a message related to the kingdom. And we'll talk about that in a minute. His rejection is clear in passages such as Matthew 12:31, where the Jews accuse him of, of blasphemy, and they say, and he says to them, "Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit." will not be forgiven men. So this is the statement everybody raises the question, well, what's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And I believe that from the context here, this is a historically conditioned rejection. 
It's a historically conditioned rejection. It applies to what was happening right then in the ministry. It applies to the fact that the Jews, as a, in terms of their official body of leaders, was rejecting the testimony, all the testimony, all the evidence that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And as a result of that, they were going to be punished. And, of course, that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. So you can't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. Nobody can do that. It was, a, it was historically related to the, to the evidentiary ministry of God the Holy Spirit in presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah to the nation. And so Jesus responds to them with, with his Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people response and he says you're a bunch of snakes you brood of vipers so this is good pastoral comforting language brood of vipers how can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks so at this point they reject him this introduces the major issue that serves as the backdrop for understanding the whole doctrine of the ascension and session. And that is the doctrine related to the kingdom. How you understand the kingdom is going to affect how you understand many passages in Scripture. And see, for most of church history, people have bought into what I refer to in the introduction as replacement theology. Replacement theology really had its origin. Sounds like the rain's picking up out there. We're getting some hail. Is that what we're hearing? Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Okay. That's not nearly as distracting as one time I was speaking at at a church in Dallas, and the whole side was, was Easter Sunday, and the whole side wall was glass, and it started snowing halfway through the message I lost everybody (laughs) replacement theology started in the uh, early church about the end of the third century around 270 to 300 in that period you had the development of what became known as allegorical interpretation and it it reduced the significance of, of literal interpretation in other words you no longer applied a literal historical grammatical method of interpretation on the text. Prior to that, that was the method of understanding Scripture. You took the words at face value, you understood the grammar, what we call exegesis, and you looked at its historical background at the time in which it was written, what we call isagogics. That's called the historical, uh, the, the uh, historical grammatical, uh, in, literal interpretation of Scripture. And when you do that, the result is always a view that there is going to be an actual, literal kingdom of David established on the earth with Christ as the ruler sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But once you begin to allegorize or spiritualize this, a thousand no longer means a thousand. It's just an ideal term uh, referring to an ideal period of time. And the throne of David just becomes any old throne, and so he must be in heaven now because we don't see this on earth. And the, the land is, that was promised to Abraham, etc., that 
is no longer viewed as a literal piece of real estate between the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River. It's now just spiritualized to heaven. And so if the kingdom is no longer future, but is now a spiritual kingdom that is operational now, then we're not looking forward to the kingdom because we're all part of the kingdom. At this point, let's all stand and hold hands and have an emotional moment because we're in the kingdom. My friend Tommy I says, if this is the kingdom, I must be living in a millennial ghetto. <laughs> but that is the view that dominated history, and this is known as amillennialism. And the prefix a is a Greekism, meaning a negative. It's like un in English. Milli is a Latin term, meaning a thousand. So, millennial refers to a, a thousand years. Amillennialism means no thousand years. So, whoever made up this word didn't understand Latin or Greek, and he combined two, two words, one from Latin, one from Greek, and so it's really a nonsense term because it's a nonsense theology. But it is what dominates Christianity. In amillennialism, we're currently living in the church age. But since there is no literal future kingdom, we are also living in the kingdom today. This is the, the church equals the messianic kingdom in spiritual form. So we're not looking forward to a kingdom in their view. We're already in the kingdom. It's a spiritualized kingdom. And Jesus is ruling uh, from the right hand of the Father on the throne of David. So therefore, the, the role of Jesus at the right hand of the Father today is diminished in significance in terms of what's getting ready to happen. Now next week, we'll get into what's getting ready to happen in terms of Old Testament promises and prophecies. But this week, I just want to make sure we understand some of the framework. So in their view, Jesus is going to come. It is future. And he will come at the end of this age and we'll all go to heaven and then we'll go into the eternal state. This is how amillennialism looks at things. But that's not how we look at things. We are what is known as premillennialists. That means we believe Jesus will return to the earth before the millennium. Now, I'm not talking about the rapture here. We're just talking about the relationship of Jesus' second coming to the kingdom. In premillennialism, we believe that we are living in the current church age. The church age is not the kingdom. Although there are some today coming out of places like Dallas Seminary and Talbot and, and other uh, historically dispensational schools who are beginning to merge certain elements of, of church age uh, or dispensationalism with, with uh, amillennial thought, and it's called progressive dispensationalism, but I don't think it's either progressive or dispensational. Uh, nevertheless, we, what we believe is that we're living in the church age the church age is going to end with the rapture. This isn't a chart on the rapture, so I didn't put it in there. This is a chart on millennialism. Don't get confused. I believe a pre-trib rapture. The church ends with the rapture. Tribulation begins, goes seven years, and ends with the set literal return of Christ called the second coming or second advent when he returns to the earth with his bride, rescues Israel, and establishes his kingdom on the earth. A thousand literal years. So this is what we believe. The kingdom is yet future. Therefore, 
The kingdom obviously was postponed. If Jesus came and offered the kingdom to Israel at the first advent and they rejected it, then that kingdom was postponed. Now it's going to happen. See, that's what's integral to understanding what's happening today at the right hand of the Father is because Jesus is doing something today that was not foreseen in the Old Testament that is preparatory for the millennial kingdom. See, that's what this is all about. Is it, it, it structures our thinking so we have a better grasp of why that spiritual life you have is so important and so crucial and what it's designed for. It's not just so you can solve problems and face the difficulties of life and have joy and happiness. This is so often this is how modern man in the last half of the 20th century had approaches the gospel. Is you want to, Dow Seminary exemplified in a track they had back in the 70s, how to have a happy and meaningful life. Jesus never presented the gospel in terms of how you can have a happy and meaningful life. That's such a subjective orientation. The gospel is about being reconciled in experience to the eternal God of the universe who created us. It is not about helping you feel better about yourself. It's not about having, it's not a psychological experience. It's not about so you can be happy and so we can figure out how to solve problems. Now that's true in terms of doctrine. We get all that. But it's greater than that. God is doing something that is going to transform the ages and is going to bring about a culmination of everything that, that, that really began back in the garden. And this happens ultimately when the second coming occurs. So, first point was that they expected a one-coming Messiah. Second thing, they confused the cross and the crown, thought the crown had to come before. Uh, they thought they, they, when Jesus came, he would have that royal, royal glory and there wouldn't really be any suffering. They just minimalized it. The third point we need to recognize as background to understanding the uh, ascension is the message of, that was proclaimed at that time. Third point, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples, and I'm talking about this in a chronological order here, all proclaim the same message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Right? Is that what they said? No, it's not. They all said the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message at their time because Jesus is making a gospel, uh, 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 making a, a uh, kingdom offer. He's presenting himself as the glorious Messiah, the greater son of David who's going to bring in the kingdom and they needed to change their thinking. That word repent, as I know Mike has taught you, it doesn't mean to have remorse or to feel sorry for your sins or, or any of those things. It means to change your thinking. And the Jews had immersed themselves into a legalistic form of thinking ever since their return from Babylon in captivity. And they were no longer grace-oriented. And so the message here is that they had to change their thinking about God and how to have a relationship with God from, from legalism to grace. Legalism says that man in some ways trying to to do certain things that impress God, that, that somehow God's blessing toward us, His goodness toward us, is conditioned upon what we do. Grace says it doesn't have anything to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
Grace means Jesus Christ did all the work and we simply receive it as a free gift. It is free to us, but it isn't free. I want you I want to drive that home. It's free to us, but it isn't free. Jesus Christ paid a price. That's redemption. We often think of grace as something that's free, something that sort of has uh, come more and more to my attention recently is, is in terms of how we distribute things. Mike has a grace policy on literature here. I have a grace policy. Grace policy means that ultimately it means money shouldn't be an issue in your getting the word. And so we produce materials, we produce tapes, booklets, things of that nature, and we don't attach a price to it. Does that mean it's free? Well, it's free to you. But does that mean it's free? Somebody has to pay the price. Everything costs money today. Every ministry, every church, everything costs money. And people need to respond in grace and gratitude. Too often, grace has been abused to think it's free. I don't have to pay. Well, that, that is an immature attitude. Many young believers had I've had it. We've all had it. Isn't this great? It's free. But there is a price. Somebody has to pay it. That's how ministries grow. That's how uh, tape ministries grow. That's how churches grow is because it, it takes finance. That's a, it, it's, it's a, a harsh reality. But this world runs on money. Churches run on money. And uh, when believers think that they don't have a responsibility, then they're wrong. There is a responsibility to give. In the church age, though, we're not mandated to give a certain amount. It just says, as God has blessed you. And it's a response of grace from our hearts. So that's my giving message. Just wanted to plug that in. You know, we pastors don't like talking to our own congregations about money. So I always find when I go someplace else that that uh, I'll throw that in and benefit of the pastor because I know Mike, he probably doesn't like to ever talk about money. I don't either. But then the bills come. Okay, so the message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. John the Baptist came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice, when the Gospels begin with Christ, they don't just begin with Christ. When, when Christ's ministry begins, they start with John the Baptist. And this was always a, a followed an Old Testament pattern. The king was always preceded by the prophet. It was Samuel the prophet who becomes the king maker for Saul and for David. So you follow that same pattern in the, in the New Testament. First the prophet appears who announces the king, and then the king appears. And so we have this same pattern. John the Baptist saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice, at the beginning of these Gospels, when he says this, he doesn't stop and explain to the folks what the kingdom is. See, I had to stop and explain to you all what the kingdom was. But he didn't have to. You know why? Those Jews knew what the kingdom was. They understood that it was the Messianic Davidic kingdom that was going to come to earth and be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants. John the Baptist didn't have to take time to define what the kingdom was. So again, you have to understand your Old Testament to understand that. Then when he saw, John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, he went to the same school of how to win friends and influence people that Jesus went to. You snakes, you're just a bunch of rotten snakes and serpents. Uh, Who warned you to flee from the, what? Wrath to come. 
Now, what's the wrath to come? Come on, some of you. What's the wrath to come? Anybody here? No, it's a tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. What is John doing here? He doesn't understand there's going to be two advents. You see that? He's saying, you, what, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He's expecting, since Messiah is there, that all, all the prophecies of the Old Testament are all going to come true. All the suffering prophecies, all the tribulation prophecies, and the establishment of the kingdom. He doesn't understand that there's now a 2,000-year uh, interval between the first coming and the second coming. He expects a tribulation. He, he expected to be on the verge of tribulation right then and there. Because he had that same view the Jews did, that there was an, a one coming Messiah. Matthew 3.10, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He expects judgment is imminent with the presence of the Messiah. Then Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is his message. He's presenting himself as the Messianic Davidic king. Then we come to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus is commissioning the disciples, and he is sending them out to the, the house of Israel. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. How about that? He's telling them not to take the gospel to certain classes of people. You know, if he did this today, he would be vilified on the front cover of Time Magazine and Newsweek and the New York Times as a racist. How politically incorrect can you be? You're only going to take the gospel to your favorite little ethnic group. You're only going to send them to the Jews. Why can't everybody get the gospel? I thought the gospel was for everyone. Because Jesus is offering the kingdom to Jews. It doesn't, at this stage, it doesn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. He's, his message is a kingdom message. He sends them not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans. He says, rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the kingdom of heaven is a Jewish kingdom. And they understood it that way. So what do we, we see here in this, in this point? That John the Baptist, Jesus, and, and the disciples are all saying the same thing. Repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's imminent. And so there's contingency here that is based on their volition. Always remember that God's blessings for Israel were contingent upon their volition to accept Jesus as Messiah. Because they didn't, they sacrificed and lost those blessings. The same thing is true for us. God has blessings that He has set aside for us from eternity past, but they're contingent upon our volition. If we choose to stay in fellowship, walk by the Spirit, learn doctrine, and apply doctrine, then those blessings are distributed. But if we fail... If we don't stay in fellowship, if we don't learn the Word, if we're not walking by the Spirit, then those blessings will not be distributed and they'll ultimately uh, be destroyed. The emphasis here is on personal responsibility. First divine institution and the Jews failed. So, point number four, near the midpoint of his ministry, the Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus as Messiah 
which led to a postponement of the kingdom. Now this is very important because in all of your other systems, what you have is what they'll say is that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom and it's coming in in some way, shape, or form even today. But what we believe as traditional dispensationalists, we believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus offered the kingdom and it was postponed. He didn't, the kingdom didn't begin, even in a spiritual form. It didn't begin. It doesn't begin until the second coming. So there is a major shift in the plan. The whole Old Testament never mentioned the church. Why didn't the Old Testament mention the church? Because if the church had been prophesied that this present parenthetical age, this intercalation between the first advent and the second advent, if that had been revealed in the Old Testament, the Jews wouldn't have had a a real dynamic choice to make at the first coming. See, they had a real choice to make, and it made a difference. If they had accepted Jesus, church age wouldn't have happened, but that's just what if history. We don't know. Uh, We know that from the eternal counsels of God that he knew exactly what would happen, and so the plan was accomplished in this way. So there's a major shift in the plan at this point, and the kingdom is postponed. I'll give you a hint. That's why the ascension had to take place. See, the ascension is not really uh, prophesied in the Old Testament because if Jesus is going to leave, you would know there was going to be something going on in between. So this is all mystery doctrine for the church age. So what happened to the kingdom? Point number one, the postponement of the kingdom called for a postponement of the glories of the kingdom. The postponement of the kingdom called for a postponement of the glories of the kingdom. The kingdom is message is rejected, the king is rejected, and so the kingdom is postponed. Second thing, postponement means the the issue of the kingdom relates to the distinct plans of God for Israel and the church. The kingdom is related to Israel. But Israel's taken off the front burner for right now and put on the back burner, and God's focus is on the church. So what God is doing today in the life of you as a believer in the church age is directly related to what he's going to do in the future in the kingdom. And what Revelation teaches is that we are being prepared to rule and reign with Christ as kings and priests to God in the millennial kingdom. In other words, we're going to be that cadre that he comes back with to rule and administer the millennial kingdom. But in order to be prepared to come back and rule and reign, we have to grow in terms of maturity and capacity. So what what we need to do is recognize what's going on is boot camp. You're in boot camp. Even if you weren't in the military, that ought to be a familiar concept. We're in training. And boot camp isn't fun. I don't know. Anybody here in the military that thought that boot camp was fun? You just That was a high point of your whole life. Yeah? Anybody enjoy that? It's not fun. There is suffering. There's difficult. Even Jesus Christ had to learn through the things that he suffered. Now let me ask you a question. Was Jesus sinless? Yes, he was sinless. Was he ever disobedient to the Father? No, he was never disobedient to the Father. But he had to learn obedience. Even Adam 
unfallen Adam in the garden was learning obedience. And that's what sanctification is all about, is learning to obey God, learning to trust Him. Problem is now, we all have a sin nature, and so we have that extra added uh, bonus attraction there, is that we have to fight our and struggle against our own sin nature in the process of sanctification. But even Jesus had to be sanctified. Adam had to be sanctified. This growth had to take place. So, postponement means that the kingdom relates to the distinct plans God has for Israel on the one hand, because he's going to have to come back to Israel in, in history, and to the church on the other hand. Third point, postponement of the kingdom means that there will be an unforeseen departure of the Messiah and a second coming. It's the, post, it's the rejection of the kingdom that means he's going to have to leave, because they rejected the kingdom. And because he left, it means there's going to be a second coming. That's why in the Old Testament there's not a clear distinction between first and second coming because if you're going to say he's coming twice, well, why does he have to leave and come back? See, all this would have rendered it obvious that somehow Israel was going to mess up. So that's just not clear. That's why it's structured this way. Now, a couple of other passages we have to look at in terms of the purpose of the present age. What is God doing? In John 6.62, Jesus says to the disciples, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Now this brings to bear a term we'll have to come back and look at in more detail next time, but I'm just going to start giving you a preview of coming attractions now. The Son of Man is a term that is loaded with significance from the Old Testament. It doesn't simply indicate His humanity. The first place the term Son of Man, the only place it's used in the Old Testament is in, it related to the Messiah, is in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it is the Son of Man who comes from heaven. Just need a little punctuation there. <laughs> It is the Son of Man that comes from heaven to defeat the kingdoms. And in Daniel 7, we'll come back and look at it next time, but it represents these four successive kingdoms in history, going back to the Babylonian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, the, uh, I mean the Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, the Roman kingdom, and then the kingdoms of man are all represented as beasts in that passage. They're represented as a, as a, as a lion and as a bear and as a leopard, and the last beast is a mighty terrible beast, and that's the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire. And then the Son of Man comes, and he just wipes out all these kingdoms and establishes his kingdom. And so the term, when you hear the term Son of Man as a Jew, you would immediately think in terms of Daniel 7 and the end of the age and the establishment of the kingdom. But what Jesus is saying here is what if the Son of Man ascends to where he was before? Wait a minute, all we saw in Daniel 7 is that he's descending and establishing the kingdom. What do you mean he's going to go away? So he's beginning to uh, give foreshadow to the fact that he is going to ascend. But he also says he's going to ascend to where he was before. What does that tell you? That tells you that before he was human, he was in heaven. It emphasizes his pre-existent deity in heaven. That's where he was before. He's going to ascend now 
to where he was before. Where is he now? He's in heaven. Where was he before? He was in heaven. That emphasizes the eternality and deity of Christ. So in John 16, 28, he clarifies and says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. In verse 7, he tells us why. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. See, something new is going to happen that wasn't foretold in the Old Testament. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Paraclete, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper will not come to you. You see this connection? Jesus says, if I don't go to heaven, if I don't ascend, the Holy Spirit's not going to come. So he had to ascend first. The Holy Spirit comes second. So the ascension is designed to set up things that are going to happen in a unique way in the church age related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's actually the the primary thing that distinguishes this age from all other ages. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit at salvation where we're entered into union with Christ. We, We walk by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're filled by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is the dynamic of the Christian life in the church age. And this couldn't happen if Jesus had stayed on the earth. Something would have been been missing. So there there is this incredible dynamic that takes place. Jesus says, I will send him to you. Now this is also important for just a footnote in the, the history of theology. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, not just the Father. That's one of the reasons that Eastern Orthodoxy the Greek churches, Greek Orthodoxy, Syrian Orthodoxy, Egyptian Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, all those Orthodoxy churches, that they split from the Western church and in the 9th century uh, or 10th century uh, A.D. is because the Western church held to a position that the Holy Spirit was sent from the Father and the Son, and they added that phrase to, a, to, a, to the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Eastern church said, no, he only comes from the Father. So that's just a little, you know, no extra charge additional attraction on that particular verse. The result is the rejection of Jesus as Messiah meant that Jesus has to expand his base. Now this doesn't mean he's replacing Israel but since Israel rejected him in order to continue operations on planet earth to bring unsaved to salvation the base is expanded and so there's a new people that are called out. The Jews have been called out for the purpose of being a blessing to all nations, but now they have failed by their own volition. So God is going to call out a new people with a new purpose and a new destiny, and that's the church age. So the next stage, point number six, the next stage is to bring in a new people to fulfill certain objectives related to the angelic conflict. And that is what we're going to be working out too, is this is related to the ultimate resolution of the angelic conflict and demonstrating the character of God and the grace of God through us in the church age. Now, all of this just gives us background of what happens at the ascension. So now we're going to answer the question, why the ascension? First of all, the Old Testament envisioned one coming, not two. This is just basic summary of what I've said already. The Old Testament envisioned one coming, not two. Second, Jewish rejection brought a postponement. Since the kingdom is postponed, point number three, there is now an unanticipated or unprophesied age. It's not unanticipated by God. It's unanticipated in the Old Testament. Point number four, 
The church age then is unique because of the role of the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life. All of this means that the role of the, at the uh, at the throne. Am I out of tape already? I, we're in trouble. <laughs> the church age is unique because of the role of the Holy Spirit in the present church age. So these are the pieces of the puzzle. The first piece is why the ascension. What's the purpose? The next issue is what happened. What happened? And I just briefly want to go over this. We'll review it a little bit at the beginning next time to get it on the tape. This is a picture, a map of the layout of, of Israel. And you see that, that over where the Temple Mount is here, and then you have the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is where Jesus ascended. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Did he just happen to walk over there? It's a nice place for liftoff. It's got good elevation. The winds are good. What's going on here? Okay, Acts 9, he's taken up. He's taken up. This is the aorist passive indicative of a pyro, which means he's passive. The subject, he, Jesus, is receiving the action. I find this fascinating, the implications of the grammar. Jesus isn't taking off like Superman. Superman, you know, they, he's got his own power, and he's just jumping off and flying under his own path. Jesus is being received. It's, a, it's an acceptance. He's passive to the action, which indicates the reception of the Father. This is further indicated by the verb, hupalambano, uh, a cloud received him. Now, the cloud is the subject of that verb. Received is now the aorist active voice indicative of hupalambano, which means the cloud performs the action of reception. Now, a cloud throughout the Old Testament represents the presence of God, often represents the glory of God. You see a cloud that went before Israel in the Old, Old Testament uh, as they went through the wilderness. And so what we see here is a visual picture of a cloud receiving him, and that is God the Father's acceptance of him. That's why you have the passive taken up, and now the act of the cloud is receiving him. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, uh, God the Father, accepting him. Okay, this is, I, I love this picture. This, this to me, gives us the, uh, you know, the real human side of what's going on here. The disciples had no idea that what was going on. And, and this picture just captures the whole uh, surprise of the moment. He was just, I mean, this, this was, I don't know if you were, some of y'all can remember this, this back when uh, the first the first uh, spacecraft took off, and everybody said, wow, look at that. And we'd just follow it forever. I had the privilege years later of going out to, to Cape Canaveral to watch one of the shuttles take off, and you just, you're just mesmerized. Just imagine in an age where no human ever flew, and all of a sudden Jesus just takes off, and the other passages we'll look at next time, he passes through the heavens. I mean, he just goes until he's just... The cloud just takes him and he's out of sight and off he goes. And they're just standing there dumbfounded with their mouths hanging open. Seven closing observations on the ascension. He went physically. Jesus, remember the angel said? Let me back up. The angel said in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. It's going to come back in the same way. 
He went physically, he's going to return physically in his human body. Remember, that's his human resurrection body that's taking off through space. Second point, he went up, he will come down. He went up, he will come down. When he returns at the second coming, he'll also come back to the same place. Third, he went up bodily, he will descend bodily in the same body. Fourth, he went up from the Mount of Olives, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. There's this symmetry in Scripture. He's going to come back to the same place, and when he does, the Mount of Olives is going to split open. His coming again, fifth point, his coming again is not an allusion to the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. See, that's how some people want to say, well, when Jesus came back in the Holy Spirit, we're the body of Christ and we're the replacement. He came back. That's not what he's saying. That's not, it's got to be in the same way. Six, his coming again is not an allusion to a judgment in in AD 70 on Jerusalem. That's a new view preterism. If you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. But it's getting real popular today that all these passages talking about judgment all were fulfilled when Jerusalem was judged in AD 70. Seventh, his coming again is not an allegory of the church. It's going to be literal, physical, and bodily. That's why I emphasize that in those first points. What happened? See, it fits a pattern. In the Old Testament, God was going to discipline Israel because of their disobedience. And so, Ezekiel has a vision of the departing of the glory of God from the temple. What happens? Ezekiel 9.3, Now the glory of the God of Israel, the Shekinah, had gone away from the cherub. It leaves the Ark of the Covenant, and he sees it moving out through the temple in the courtyard, it leaves the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. Ezekiel 10.4 Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So there's this movement out of the temple. And then in Ezekiel 11.23 And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives. And then where does it go? The Shekinah goes to heaven. See, Jesus fits the same pattern. He comes out of the east side of the city, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he goes. it all fits together. You think the Bible just happened by chance? It's just a random collection of writings that people had about their, their relationship with God? No, this is an incredible book where every piece fits together. So Jesus Christ ascent to heavens foreshadowed let's say by this it's not a prophecy it's just a foreshadowing he fits the pattern he's going to ascend to heaven and he's going to return to the same point but he's doing something today and God is doing something today with the church and with our spiritual life that is directly related to his current position at the right hand of the father known as the session and we will talk about that the next three times. Mike's going to come up and close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great system of perception so that we can understand these great and mighty things. We understand that we can't look at the Bible in an allegorical term. We see it as specific events that you knew in eternity past that would unfold. 
And to the believer who is the winner believer, the one who has ears to hear, they have great significance. Indeed, it encourages us to have a personal sense of eternal destiny. We pray that as we learn more and more about the ascension, the session, and our spiritual life, that we will acquire more and more of an appreciation for who and what you are and what you have planned for us in the future. We pray all these things in the name that is above all names, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.